And I, I love what JB said. He said, hope is a memory of the future. Hope is choosing to believe in something not yet done, but trusting that it will be done. And so today, that's what we're, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about hope today. We're talking about hope as we begin our Advent series, Christ Moss. And I don't know about you, but I, I, need, I need more Christ in my Christmas. <laughs> I don't know about how you feel or how you're entering into this whole fresh season of Advent, but I need Christ Moss in my Christmas. I need more Jesus, more Jesus in my life. Please come alive, Lord. I miss all the twinkles and sparkles and ribbons and lights and all the delight that we feel this time of year. This season also finds us feeling the tensions of our own personal circumstances, whatever those might be, whether those might be personal for you, maybe you're truly going through a difficult season, or maybe you're feeling, feeling that corporately within the community, or maybe you're feeling it globally amidst all the wars raging around the world, and, and you feel the weight of that, you feel the just feel the, the sadness of that. Some of us expected a different financial outcome that didn't come to pass this year. And now already before 24, 2024 even gets started, you're already feeling stress about the new year. Others of us lost loved ones this year. And we're beginning Advent with hearts full of grief, with, with hearts broken. We all come to this season with concerns. And we all need to feel the moss, Christ, of Christmas. The gifts of moss hope, moss joy, moss peace, moss glory. We'll be discussing each one of these gifts during this series, but today I wanna look specifically at hope. Moss hope, moss Hope. The great 19th century pastor Charles Spurgeon once said that hope is a swimming thought because when all other thoughts are drowned, hope keeps us afloat. Hope is like a buoyant life preserver that keeps our head above water amidst all the difficulty of our circumstances and all that happens in our world. Some of us right now might feel all but drowned and you are wondering, will I be saved? Will my life preserver come? Is there hope for a better day? And if you're asking this question, or if you know someone who's asking this question, then may I invite you to take hold of the swimming verses, the life-preserving verses of John chapter one. The first 18 verses of John's gospel are called the prologue. And these verses are some of the most magnificent descriptions about Jesus that we read in the whole New Testament and some of the most magnificent verses in the whole Bible. Dare I say that if all we had, if our, if our Bible was just these 18 verses, then this would be enough to know God's salvation grace for each one of us. These first 18 verses, John constructed the full meaning of everything that Jesus was, everything that Jesus is for us right now, and everything that Jesus will do for us. Verses 1 and 2 begin by describing Jesus' identity. Who is this man that came to us all these years ago? And then from there, John writes six more paragraphs in his prologue that paired up into two different groupings. The first one focusing on new creation, and what Jesus did and how Jesus is making us new. And then 
he wrote a witness into it in John the Baptist, and then a choice that he gives to all of us. Will you believe this? In verses 10 through 13. And then in the second grouping, John, the apostle John, then describes Jesus as the incarnation. That God actually came into our world, if you can believe that, in the person of this man. And then once again, the apostle John wrote a verse about John the Baptist as a witness to the incarnation. And then paralleling the first grouping offers us a choice. Will you believe this? Will you choose to believe who Jesus is? And then he closes inviting all of us in verse 18 into a relationship. I want to look at this together with you. And I want to invite you to strap in for a few minutes. Because I want to take you on a journey of what the Apostle John wrote about who this man is for us. And I'm praying for you. I'm praying that at the end of this, that you will, you will leave here today. And you will go into your week with a fresh sense of hope that you can, you actually can live a better day. That there is a better day waiting for you. And that day can become your reality right now. Let's begin in verses one and two. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. In John's opening words to his gospel, we hear the echo of the first words written in the Bible. In Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning. As if to say, to know the meaning of Jesus, we need to begin all the way back in the beginning. Because Jesus didn't just poof, appear, and save us from our circumstances. No, rather John tells us that Jesus existed before anything ever existed. In fact, God created all things and all people through what John calls the word. Now, if you've ever read these verses and you've wondered to yourself, what, what, is, what does John mean when he calls Jesus the word? What exactly does this mean? May I invite you to think about it like this. When you speak a word, in a sense, that word is a part of you, right? It's your breath that comes from inside you making the noise that you give it with your body. If my actions don't match my words, I can count on those closest to me saying, hey, you said this, but you're doing this. What's going on? There's a disconnect, right? Because I'm responsible for my words. I'm responsible for what I speak. You are also responsible for your words and what you speak. Words embody the essence of a person. If you wouldn't know what I'm thinking, then ask me a question and I'll tell you with my words. So the word, of, the word that John refers to, Jesus embodies the very heart, and the very mind of God. Jesus is God. If you want to know God, then listen to the word that God spoke through the person of Jesus. Yet as you speak, we also know that your words, they go out, into the, into the air, into the world, and they, they do what they do, and sometimes they're received in the way you intended, sometimes they aren't, because your words, once they leave you, they become independent of you, don't they? They, they? they exist apart from you, and they can create life-changing situations for either good or not so good. Think about the power words that we discussed in, in the last series that we just ended. Thank you. The power of those words Thank you. Or the words, I love you. 
or the words, will you forgive me? The power in these words, words have power. Throughout the Bible, God regularly acts by merely speaking his word. In Genesis chapter 1, 10 times, 10 representing completion, 10 times God spoke his word and the fullness of completion of creation came into existence. What God says happens always. That's the whole witness of of scripture. If you read the Bible from beginning to end, you will see that everything that God says happens as God intended for it to happen. So not necessarily like us where I might say something and I'm thinking, okay, uh, (laughs) how did you hear me say that? No, not with God. What God says happens exactly as God intended for it to happen. And this shows the absolute power of God, the might of God, the presence and reality of God. Psalm chapter 33, verse 6 says, The Lord merely spoke, and the heavens were created. He breathed the word, and all the stars were born. The prophet Isaiah wrote, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And I love this psalm. Psalm 119, verse 14. You are my refuge. You are my shield. Your word is my source of hope. Your word. I can hope because I can stand on your word. When the angel Gabriel, in fact, visited Mary and invited her to trust God with bearing our Savior into the world, he said to her, for the word of God will never fail. This is, this is what the messenger of God spoke over the one who became impregnated with our Messiah. My word will never fail over you. And it will never fail over those who place their trust in him. In the opening verses of John, notice how the, the outer lines of these opening verses, they read like a poem And both of these lines reflect each other in the beginning and then in the beginning as if to say that this this man who came into our world, though he lived in this finite world in which we live, he, he wore a body just like you and I live. He was born, he breathed life, he ate meals, he he died, he and for those of you know, he died on the cross for the salvation of our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins, for the salvation of our lives, that in this man was also eternity. And this is a profound, mysterious part that John is trying to highlight, but he wants us to know that this man wasn't just an ordinary man, but this this man inhabited God. That eternity lived in this man. And this, I believe, gives us great reason to hope, especially in a world as fleeting as ours. Right? In, In a world that just evaporates sometimes what feels like a mist. A couple weeks ago, I spoke with a man who, who shared his, his own story on this topic, on this topic of living in this fleeting world. And uh, he once served as the pit crew, a part of the pit crew for Kevin Harvick. So any, any NASCAR fans in here like me, I mean, that's, it, was, it was super cool just hearing his story and hearing him talk about his experience serving on the pit crew. And he said that every year, Harvick and his team, they had two goals, to win the Cup Series championship and then win Daytona 500. And if they could do that, then that, man, what a season, right? And so in 2007, when this man served on the pit crew, they achieved their goal in Daytona. They won the Daytona 500. And he talked about how, you know, when Harvick came out from victory lane, they went in the garage and they celebrated victory. And they, it was just amazing for about five minutes. 
And then what do they do? They turn their attention to next week's race, right? And he, and he, he told me in, in, this, in this call, he said, you know, he said, I knew winning Daytona wouldn't ever completely satisfy me, but I didn't, I had no idea just how fleeting that whole experience would be. He said it was the next morning when the Lord called him into ministry. Listen, whatever you might be dreaming right now, in fact, just imagine in your mind, what, what is it that you're chasing for? What is it right now that you're aiming for? Bigger house, hopefully raise next year, I, I don't know, whatever it might be, like better relationships, whatever it is you're dreaming of. Let me tell you, Jesus is so much bigger. Jesus is so much bigger. He's so much larger than your desires. I would dare say that whatever you're aiming for, it's like, you know, it's like the, Jesus is like, I'm here. Don't aim there. Come up here. Come up here with me. I'm up here. Raise your eyes higher. Hope higher because Jesus is bigger. Next, in the two internal lines, we read the word was with God and the word was God. This gives, this gives Jesus' identity. Jesus, in, in a mysterious way, was with God and he was God. God and the word are one and yet also distinct. And Jesus affirms this point throughout his teaching. In John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, The Father and I are one. One. A few chapters later in John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus again says, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. These verses laid the groundwork for what would eventually become the doctrine of the Trinity. One of the core teachings of our faith that says that God is one God in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you want to know the heart and mind of our Father God, if you, know what he want, if you want to know what he's thinking about you and what he's, how he feels toward you, Jesus says, look at me. Look at me. I am the visible image of the invisible God, Jesus says. Know me, trust me, listen to me, walk with me, know me, and you will know the Father. And these are just the first two verses. Come on, come on. I mean, we got, we got 16 more to go. Who's strapped in and ready to go? We, oh, I wish we had an hour. You guys want to stay a little longer? We, we could, I'm, we got kids, I know. I know we got kids in the ministry. But, uh, Verse 3 begins the first grouping, which describes Jesus as the new creation, God's new creation work in the world. John wrote this in verses 3 through 5. God created everything through Jesus, through, through him, meaning Jesus the word, and nothing was created except through him. Which means as you take a look at your life, your entire life is created through, through the word. Amazing. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought life to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Another translation reads, and the darkness has not overcome it. As if to say that the victory belongs to the light. That nothing can ever put this light out. Ever. Nothing can extinguish it. Here, John, I know, come on. I, I'm, I'm, feel, I'm just feeling these verses today. 
I've been, I've been in this for a few weeks now, and it's just coming out of me. But here, John takes us all the way back to the very first words that God ever spoke in our world, to the chaos of the dark, beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, which simply says, let there be light. The very first words that initiated creation into existence was light, the light of life. And God's light brought life to a lifeless nothing. And now Jesus, who is the full embodiment of God's spoken word, brings forth the light of life now to a dark world, broken by sin. Later in John's gospel, Jesus said himself, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. There is an enemy against this creation that God, that God made. And this enemy seeks to undo, is, and is seeking to undo, the creation that God made. And he did so by introducing into the world the sin of deceit, of division, of death. And when we, when we experience that in our life, when we choose that, it's, it's, like we, it's like we choose a force that ends up decreating our lives. That's what sin is. Sin is like a computer virus that's literally deleting the code of our soul. If any of you work in computer programming or have experienced the fruit of, of technology that didn't work because of some virus that got into it that, that literally deleted the code, that made the thing work, that's what sin does to us. It's like unmaking us, unmaking us from the inside out. And some of you feel so undone right now because you've placed your hope in a force other than God's creative force, which is now dismantling you. You know, there have been times in my life where I have said to myself, man, I feel, like my, I feel like a part of my soul was stolen from me. Like, just ways that I live for certain seasons. I came out of those seasons and thought, man, like, I, feel like, I feel like a shell of a man. If you've ever said that, that's true. That's true because sin, that's what sin, sin unmakes us. But in the second half of this verse, these are Jesus' words. He's stating the reality, but then he's stating his purpose. And he says, yes, that is the reality. But my purpose for you is to give you a rich and satisfying life. What if this Christmas you received the gift of Christmas? That might be the most important gift that you, you might receive dozens of gifts. But the most important gift that you need this Christmas is to receive Christmas his new creation work alive in you to put you back together and to remake you into a new son and a new daughter. Oh, Lord, I, I'm praying for that in my own life. If I may be transparent with you, I'm always praying for that. This first grouping ends with the Apostle John writing about the witness of John the Baptist in verses 6 through 9, and then again a choice in verses 10 through 13, and I want to come back to that in just a moment. I want to go ahead and transition to the second grouping of the incarnation. God didn't make us new by merely snapping his fingers. Rather, he made himself, he chose to make us new by literally entering into our story. <laughs> because in doing so, he chose to go all the way deep into our lives so that he could remake us from the inside out. It would have been easier to do that, but God chose the harder way so that we might experience his new life beginning here and now. 
Beginning in verse 14, John writes this, so the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the Father is one and only Son. God came, came right up close and personal, just boom, like face to face with us. The Greek word from which we receive the phrase made his home among us is this fascinating word called eskinoso, which literally translates as to live in a tent. Isn't that kind of, isn't that kind of fascinating? So if, you, if we re, reread this verse, listen, to, so the word became human and lived in a tent with us. Well, that sounds kind of strange. What, what, what does that mean? Here, John is carefully crafting an image of Jesus that echoes the tabernacle tent where God dwelled with his people through their wilderness journey in, in the book of Exodus. And, and I want to invite you, if, if, you have, if, if you are new with us in the last couple months, we did a whole series through the book of Exodus where we explored this whole idea of how God invited Moses to build the tabernacle, a tent of worship where he would fill with his presence all in for, as a foreshadow to later coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, here John is picking up on that. So he's going all the way back to Exodus now and saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of what God had started all the way once again in the beginning. You can visit that at christjourney.org slash messages. Just simply click on Exodus and you can, you can hear all about it. It's a fascinating. And it helps, helps us see that how cohesive the Bible is. This isn't just a collection of random stories. This is a story that's been building for millennia. But except this time, God didn't show up in a cloud of smoke by day and fire by night. Instead, God showed up for us as a human being to lead us to our true promised land, which is life forever with God and a right and whole relationship made possible by God's presence with us in a real man, a real human being. Now, in both groupings here, the Apostle John follows these sections with the witness of John the Baptist and then a choice for us. Now, I wish I had time to go into all of this to unpack all the gems in these sections of witness and choice in both of these groupings. But we need to at least ask the question, why would the apostle John want to mention John the Baptist? Because if you read this whole prologue, all 18 verses, it kind of seems like John the Baptist is this kind of like this interjection into, into the story. And it's like, well, why can't we just let the, these verses about Jesus stand on their own? And as I started thinking about that, I, I started realizing it makes sense when you think about LeBron James. I don't know about you, but, and, and I get it, we're in Miami. Some of you might still feel a little sore when, I, when you hear the word LeBron, you know, hear, hear LeBron's name. But if you have followed LeBron at all throughout his career, then you'll know that in the very beginning of his career, Nike branded his entire campaign Witness. Witness. In fact, I'm sure if not you, your kids own Witnesses, right? Your kids own LeBrons. And almost on on almost every LeBron shoe is, is written witness on it. Why would, why would that happen? Because what is greatness without a witness, right? I mean, that's what at least Nike wants us to think. If greatness happened in the woods and no one was there to experience it, did greatness really happen, right? Here, John the Baptist is here to say, actually, I'm here to bear witness to the greatness of Jesus. I'm here to 
to show, I'm here to prepare the way for the greatness that is about to arrive to us. So John the Baptist in these verses isn't just a throwaway afterthought, he's the witness. And for those of us who, who read these verses and who choose to place our trust in him, then all of a sudden now we are found into the story of John and we're invited to live our lives as witnesses also. The great theologian Karl Barth, he wrote, his, he, he wrote over a million words published in books over the course of his life. He's a great 20th century theologian. He pinned all of his writings at a small wooden desk with this painting hanging right in front of him. It's a pretty graphic scene of the crucifixion. And it's written, it, it was painted by an artist named Matthias Grunewald. And what Grunewald is trying to do in this painting is not just show the crucifixion scene. This isn't just a literal scene because there are characters in this scene, such as John the Baptist, who weren't even live at the time that Jesus was crucified. He was, in fact, John was martyred in Matthew chapter 14 for being a witness. <laughs> but what he's encapsulating here is the whole gospel story. And John the Baptist, in particular, has a crucial part to play in this story. In, in Latin, you can see in small letters by his finger, that is the verse John 3.30 that John the Baptist said, which says, he must increase and I must decrease. <laughs> I'm here to just simply point the way. At the end of Karl Barth's life, a journalist came up to him and said, you've written so many books. You've helped the church understand God. You've done so much with your life. You've traveled the world. How do you want to be remembered? He passed away, I think, sometime in the early 1960s. And he simply said this, I simply want my life to resemble the finger of John the Baptist. I want my life to point to my, to my Savior, to my Lord. That's what, that's what the apostle is inviting us to experience in this prologue. The, there's so much more. And then he and then he closes both of these groupings with a choice. And in verse 12, he writes, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. The light is shining, the apostle says, showing the way for all to receive God as our father. And you have been given, each one of us has been given the right to become his children. What kind of love does that? What kind of love would look at a person like me and say, you have the right to become my son? What kind of love would say that to any one of us? A love too good to be true, perhaps? Well, maybe. Maybe, maybe that's how you feel it right now. Maybe, maybe that's what you think, that this love right now just feels too good to be true, that, that it feels like a fiction, a, a wonderful work of fiction, that just doesn't quite come down to reality. And if you do, then that's okay, because we've all felt that way. But let me ask you this. When it all hits the fan, <laughs> what do you turn to? What gives you the strength to take the next step? Ultimately, yes, hope chooses to believe something that we can't see, that we can't touch. 
And that's a challenge for us all. Me too. But if you're open to taking that step of hope, of faith, of love, then Jesus' hand, at least in my experience, in the experience of so many I know, is right there to receive you before your foot ever touches the ground. One of my favorite Christmas movies of all time, and I want to close with this, is The Polar Express. I, I, just, I just love this film. I love it. It's full of imagination. It's full of, it's full of adventure. It's full of mystery. And the more I watch it, the more I, I see the upside-down nature of this film. There's so much more that meets the eye in this film. Here, a young boy who doesn't believe in Santa gets the opportunity of a lifetime to visit Santa's workshop. I mean, not the kid who wrote a letter to Santa in October or the kid who visited Santa at the mall. It was this kid. It was the kid who told his sister, hey, Santa's not real. You know, if you watch the film, you know, it's the kid who, it's the kid who doesn't believe, who gets the right of a lifetime. How, how is that? I mean, the more I watch this film, if you don't feel offended, at least slightly, that this kid got the ticket to ride the Polar Express, then I just don't think we're paying attention. Because ultimately, this kid is every single one of us. And that's what draws me to the film. <laughs> that's what draws me in. Now, the Polar Express, this is a fictional tale, right? It's, it's not real. But what is real is the incarnate God of all creation who is inviting us to receive his eternal hope in Jesus Christ, not based on anything that we could do, but entirely based on his deep, can't put into words kind of love for you, for me, and for the whole world, for those not yet here, and for those in our lives who have completely rejected this. Don't reject them because God still sees them and says, I love you, I love you, I want you, I desire you, I have dreams bigger than you can ever imagine. In the film, the conductor says to the boy, sometimes the most real thing in life is what you cannot see. And I believe that. I believe, that's been my story. I believe that. My friend, Jesus sees you. He sees, he sees you, the unbeliever. He sees you, the doubter. He sees you, the one who looks inside you right now and hates what you see. Jesus sees you and is offering you the ride of a lifetime. The ride of a lifetime. In verse 18, John closes the prologue in the most fascinating way. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> that's, that's literally how John closes the prologue. He doesn't put his sentence at the end. He doesn't button it up with a bow. He just leaves it open as an invitation. He said, I've given you everything. And these first 18 verses, now we're going to spend the next 22 chapters, we're going to, we're going to dive into this. You're going to hear, hear Jesus' teaching. You're going to hear all these wonderful things that he did. But before you, can, before you can do any of that, here's the invitation. The invitation for you. My friend, this world is inviting us to hope in all kinds of things. In wealth building, in relationships, in education, in government, in yourself, in whatever. There are no endless options to place your hope. And you know what? 
you will be celebrated for placing your hope in any one of those things. In fact, you may place your hope in those things and for a season, maybe even a long season, you may feel entirely fulfilled. But there will come a day when it all hits the fan. And at that point, what what will help you take the next step? What will give you what your soul truly needs? What will put you back together when you're holding the pieces of your life in your hands? John is saying, and I believe, it's the very God of the universe who came to us in the person of a human being who's extending an invitation to you to make you new. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of life that you came to bring us. Lord, thank you for the gift of Advent, this whole season, for arriving to us, for not leaving us on our own, for not just snapping your fingers, but for coming all the way deep into our lives so that you can make us new from the inside out. God, thank you. Thank you. Lord, I pray that you would give us a hope beyond this life. Lord, I pray that today eyes would be open to it, to choose the place they're hoping you, to lift their eyes higher, to begin a, a journey with you today that goes into eternity. Lord, we have nothing to fear. There is nothing to fear with you. And so, Lord, today we receive you afresh and we receive your hope today. Lord, for, for anybody today, for anybody today who would like to to place their trust in Jesus and let today begin your first day in a relationship with your Lord and Savior. I would just invite you to pray this prayer with me. Lord, today I'm trusting to place my, my hope in you, in you alone. I'm, tr- I'm trusting, to, trusting you for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm placing my life in your hands. Lord, receive me. I'm yours. I need you. And so, Lord, I trust that today, as I place my my hope in your hands, Lord, that you will fill me with your Holy Spirit and that we can begin a journey together that goes into eternity. If you prayed this prayer with me, with head still bowed and eyes still closed, I want to invite you to raise your hand just so that I can see you. Now for a blessing over you. Thank you. Thank you in the middle. Yes. One, two, three, four. In the middle section, five, six, seven just in the middle section, eight, nine. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. 10, in the, in, my, in the back to my right. Oh, my Lord. Thank you, Lord. The Lord sees every hand, and he sees you, and he welcomes you into a relationship today. And so, Father, as your church, give us the strength we need by the presence of your spirit with us to walk each day with you in hope, and enjoy, and with the confidence we need to know that you are with us each and every single day. Lord, we love you, and we offer this prayer to you in your name, Jesus. Amen.